This message comes from NPR sponsor, Microsoft. Monday at the office feel like a storm. When AI-powered Microsoft Copilot simplifies data and uncovers insights, it feels more like a day at the beach. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Sarah McCammon. I cover the presidential campaign. I'm Ryan Lucas. I cover the Justice Department. And joining us again, Sam Greenglass from WABE in Georgia. Hey, Sam. Hi there. Sam, you've been covering the case in Georgia against former President Donald Trump and several of his associates in connection with their efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And there have been some big developments in the past couple of days. I want to start with that guilty plea from Jenna Ellis, the Trump lawyer. Remind me who she is. And now that she's made this rather dramatic acknowledgement of what she did, what she said, what did she do? Yeah, so you might remember Jenna Ellis from these press conferences that the Trump campaign held after the 2020 election. She stood next to the likes of Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. And these people were making some pretty baseless claims about election fraud. And the thing that she was actually charged in connection with was this December 2020 hearing uh, for a Georgia State Senate committee where Giuliani and some other lawyers got up in front of these lawmakers and, you know, were making claims like tens of thousands of dead people, minors, were all voting in Georgia's election, all with the aim, prosecutors say, of getting these state lawmakers to help with their plan of submitting a fake slate of electors for Trump. All we should say, baseless claims. Correct. And so when Jenna Ellis appeared in the courtroom this week to enter a guilty plea, something really unusual happened, at least in the course of the pleas we've had so far in this case. She asked the judge if she could address the court and make an apology, and she started to weep as she read this statement. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. Thank you. And what can you tell us, Sam, about why she might have chosen to plead guilty? Well, in the initial indictment, Ellis, just like everyone else who was charged by District Attorney Fonnie Willis in Fulton County, was looking at a racketeering charge, uh, that's a felony, as well as several other counts. And in this plea deal, she ended up with a greatly reduced sentence, uh, one felony charge instead of several. Uh, She won't be facing any jail time, a couple of years of probation, some restitution, a letter of apology, community service, which is far different than, you know, putting your fate in the hands of 12 jurors, that could really go any which way at the end of a trial. It's also far different than continuing to pay mounting legal bills, which is something that all the defendants in these grand jury cases have had to pay for weeks, if not months now. And with the prospect potentially of, you know, she didn't have a trial date, of months more of, of legal bills, she's certainly saving herself a bunch of money by cutting this plea deal now. I mean, we're talking in Jenna Ellis's case about, what, a couple hundred thousand dollars at least so far? What we do know is uh, Trump, uh, through his Save America PAC, has paid several hundred thousand dollars in legal fees just up until the time of his indictment in Georgia. So if that provides any suggestion of how expensive some of these really good Atlanta defense attorneys are, yeah, you could be looking at a lot of money. It ain't cheap. And they could have been looking, again, at prison time. 
And that isn't the only plea deal, right, Sam? I mean, I think this is the fourth plea deal from Trump allies in this case. Catch us up on what's happened so far. Yep. So this is plea deal number four. Remember, there were 19 defendants initially charged. And, you know, it was a little quiet for a while after the indictment. All of these people initially pleaded not guilty. But we've had a bit of a stream over the last couple of days. And that's really part of the aim of a racketeering prosecution, where you start to pick away at some of the low-level players and work your way up as you get closer to trial. And so it's possible we could expect to see more as we go forward. You talk about there being four people so far who have reached these plea deals with the DA down there. What has the reaction been to them? Because they were accused of essentially trying to undermine the election in in Georgia. And here they are, you know, they're not facing prison time, basically. Yeah. So let me note the names of the people who have taken these plea deals. We've talked about Jenna Ellis. There's Scott Hall, uh, who is an Atlanta bail bondsman uh, charged in connection with a breach of voting machines in Coffee County. Sidney Powell, who was also involved in that effort. And then Ken Chesbro, who prosecutors say was one of the architects of this scheme to submit slates of electors for Trump in states that Biden won. So these are players that touch a lot of different pieces of this alleged conspiracy. And so the hope from prosecutors is that they can each shed light on these different elements of the plan to keep Trump in office. What we don't know is exactly what they'll say on the stand, how far they'll go in that testimony. Will they implicate other people in this scheme or keep their testimony really narrow to what they supposedly were involved in themselves? And so I think as far as judgment goes to some of these sentences, you know, misdemeanors, probation for people who were supposedly involved in helping to try and overturn an election, I think a lot of people are going to be waiting to see what goods do they bring to the trial? How much are they willing to say before expressing judgment of whether these pleas were too lenient or appropriate given the circumstances? I will say, having talked to um, a couple of former prosecutors today, I've heard mixed reactions. But one thing that everyone always reminds me is the best plea deals come early. So there's a motivation for defendants in a case, particularly a big case like this, to strike a plea deal early while they can get a better deal uh, as opposed to waiting. Yeah, I was listening to a press conference on Monday that featured Norm Eisen of the Brookings Institution, and I think he put it really well, which is that plea deals uh, do not get better over time. They're more like fish than fine wine. I want to talk more about the bigger picture implications of these plea deals in just a moment. But first, it's time for a break. We'll be back in just a second. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Carvana has made it easy to sell your car. Just enter your license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and they'll give you a real offer in seconds. And it's good for up to seven days. Visit Carvana.com to get an instant offer today. This message comes from Jackson. Seek clarity in retirement planning at Jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial, Inc., Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture. Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins. And Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. And we're back. So we've been talking about these guilty pleas in Georgia. Sam, are there consequences for the larger trajectory of this case? 
Yeah, this is sort of RICO 101. Prosecutors start trying to peel off some of the lower level players and hopefully use them to climb the ladder and reach into the thinking of the bigwigs, the, the people they really want to have convictions and prison time at the end of this. So remember, there are 15 other co-defendants, including former President Trump, who have not entered plea deals. That number will probably winnow down with additional deals over the course of this pretrial moment. And you can also make pleas right up until the time of a verdict. So there it's not necessarily an end date in here. And so I think what we'll be looking for is what exactly each of these players will say on the stand. We don't know at this point. Prosecutors do. They recorded interviews with each of these people who have taken a plea deal before it was set in stone. So they probably have a pretty good sense of what evidence and eyewitness testimony they're going to be able to bring to the table. But we, the public, don't know at this point. So yes, it could have sweeping consequences for these other co-defendants. But the extent to which that's true, we just don't know at this point. Two things that I want to jump in with here. One is there's no guarantee that these folks will be called to testify in a trial. Um, they certainly have credibility issues. Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis were on TV for months talking about how the election had been thrown and it was all rigged. And then they're going to come in here and say something else in court. Would a jury find them credible? I don't know. But that's certainly a calculation that Willis and her team are going to have to make as they consider um, using them potentially in trial. The second thing is that's really good and perhaps a motivating factor in part for the DA's office to strike these plea deals is Powell and Chespro had demanded a speedy trial. That means that other defendants would have had a preview of what the DA's case was here if there had indeed been a trial. So striking these plea deals, yes, having these plea deals means that Willis gets to hold her fire. The other defendants don't get to see the evidence in the case and how she was going to build it and how she was going to present it. And that, of course, is a benefit to her going forward. Yeah. And Chesbro's plea deal came literally as the jury was being selected a couple floors below for a trial that was set to start the following week. So this came at the very last minute. But it also, in addition to, you know, the prosecutors having to potentially reveal the the scope of the case that they were going to present in a trial, they also would have had to deal with just the logistics of doing a three to five month trial once and then doing another one right on the other side of it. So that's a key consideration here that probably spurred prosecutors wanting to make a deal with at least Chesbro and Powell. You know, one question I have about how these plea deals come to be, do we know if all of the defendants were offered one? We don't. Uh, we have an inkling that some others have probably been offered plea deals, but we don't know exactly who and how many. So we've been talking about the implications of these plea deals for the Georgia case. But of course, that's not the only case Trump and his allies are facing related to election interference and other matters. How might whatever comes out in the Georgia case affect these other cases? I mean, it, it won't necessarily affect the other cases. Uh you know, the, the the federal case in Florida relates to classified documents. The New York case relates to hush money payments. So those two, I think we can probably set aside. As for the D.C. election case, prosecutors in Georgia do not have to share information that they get with, with Jack Smith. These are separate sovereigns, so to speak. 
there's no obligatory, you know, sharing of information back and forth. Um, I don't know whether this is something that Willis has addressed directly down there, Sam. Yeah, I've asked uh, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County prosecutor, this question directly going back to August before these indictments dropped. And she told me that she is not coordinated in any capacity with the Department of Justice. She said Jack Smith probably wouldn't even be able to recognize her if he saw her on the street. And she's continued to say that there's no coordination between her investigation and the federal one. And I think the other point that we can make, too, just as a timeline question, the federal trial is expected to begin in March, and Georgia's will probably happen sometime after that concludes. So, you know, if we're talking about witnesses in Georgia who have accepted plea deals taking the stand here in Atlanta, that probably won't even happen until after former President Trump's federal trial has played out and concluded. So let's talk about the timeline here. As you alluded to, these cases keep sneaking further and further out and therefore deeper and deeper into the 2024 presidential campaign season. And, you know, as I've been on the campaign trail in New Hampshire recently, for example, I have heard from Republicans who said it's time to move on from Trump. We don't want somebody who's facing indictments uh, to be at the top of our party, essentially. Um, Do you hear that from voters in Georgia, Sam? I think it breaks both ways. You know, on one hand, you have this data point that the Trump campaign has made several million dollars off selling merchandise with his Fulton County mugshot on it. So I think there's certainly a segment of the Republican base that is fired up by these prosecutions here in Georgia and other places against the former president. But then I've also spent a lot of time in Atlanta suburbs. These are places that used to vote Republican but have been driven away from the party in the age of Trump. People who tell me that they have not been happy with how Biden has handled his administration. But if we have a nominee who is still former President Trump, who is in the middle of all of these legal entanglements, I think that could have really big consequences for where Georgia goes at the end of 2024. If you remember the margin, as has been at the center of this election interference case that we're talking about, was just under 12,000 votes. That's really close. And so some of these middle-of-the-road people in the suburbs... That could matter a lot. All right, we'll leave it there. Sam Greenglass, thanks so much for being with us as always. Thanks, Sarah. I'm Sarah McCammon. I cover the presidential campaign. I'm Ryan Lucas. I cover the Justice Department. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. In a stressful election year, we know that a good show, movie, or book can feel like a sacred thing. At Pop Culture Happy Hour, we believe pop culture can be good for you. So we're here four days a week to bring you a book, movie, or show recommendation to put you in high spirits. For a dose of old-fashioned pop culture therapy, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast only from NPR.